Hi everyone, uh, welcome to the Talk Zero podcast and we are today exploring and campaigning a zero-based lifestyle with Malika Arya. Welcome to the podcast, Malika. For the viewers, I'd like to get you on track with what all she's done and she's done quite a lot. Let me start with that she's a campaigner at Purpose. She has uh, co-founded No Straws Attached. She is a follower of Zero Lifestyle for a long time now and she's even done zero-based traveling. She has done a she did a sustain, uh, like master's in sustainability in Australia and from there came back to India and worked in Varadasi and uh, come on like she's even been to Antarctica so <laughs> I, I cannot decode the phenomenon that you are and just how would you like to describe this? <laughs> uh, you've given quite an introduction already but um, I think there are definitely you know the things you mentioned that I've been there, done this, there are definitely things that I would like to talk about a little more. Um, I think one thing that I always, whenever Antarctica comes up, the first thing I always say is, I'm really glad I went, it changed my life forever. Would I go again? No. Sometimes people ask you like, you know, I even actually say I wish I hadn't gone. And that's something that I talk about a little later. Um, Keep uh, keep the listeners a little... uh, Intrigued to begin with. I am too intrigued already. That's that's quite a statement to hear. <laughs> so so let's just go back to the very beginning and then start from there. And so we know exactly where your decision making process are coming from. So let's go back to your childhood. How what was it like? Sure. So I had um I had a pretty great life. Uh, as a kid, I uh, grew up with my parents at home, an elder brother and my grandmother, my nanny. So, uh, the five of us uh, lived together, you know, right through till I was 23. We spent all our summers visiting my Dada Dadi in a small town called Rurki. It's right before Haridwar. Um, So, I used to spend at least a month, month and a half there every summer. And it's through my grandparents that I really started understanding, I guess, the larger environment that we live in. My grandmother, my dadi was a flower show judge for almost 30 years. She wrote multiple novels on, um, novels, uh, kids books and comics on uh, nature, on, you know, like animals. Um, She was a preschool teacher and loved talking to her kids about, you know, things like gardening as well. Uh, And she had the most amazing garden. She could like name every plant on this planet. I'm not even joking. Uh, so she had this amazing, uh, I guess, repository of knowledge when it comes to everything about our planet. And I think my father's also been like that. So uh, I was very lucky to grow up being exposed to a lot of the outdoors. Uh, we, ha- we have a farm just a little outside, uh, just a little outside Gurgaon, about 40 minutes away from my house. We used to go there a lot, almost every weekend when I was a kid. Uh, my dad loves farming. That was his weekend hobby. So yeah, like I said, we, I've, I've had the opportunity to be exposed to a lot of that. I've been camping a lot, used to go rafting and hiking almost every year, at least once or twice a year. So just being able to re- observe nature from really up close from a young age. I think that is the key to getting, at least in my opinion, that is the key to getting someone invested, uh, you know, in wanting to protect and preserve the environment. As you said, that uh, 
like getting close to the environment and the nature at the very early stage of your life that really uh, sensitizes you to the environment as a whole but what was the first time that you really felt that there is a climate concern and it became a personal issue to you sure um the first time really that i started internalizing it and started understanding that we all have a role to play as well was uh back when i did the teach for india fellowship so i did the teach for india fellowship from 2014 to 16 and i was teaching a bunch of third graders you know when i guess when you're a teacher to 30 children who are just like 10 years old 12 years old starting out their lives you really start thinking that what kind of shitty planet are we leaving them you know like i could spend 5 6 hours a day in class teaching them maths and science and english and the correct grammar correct pronunciation but what is the point of that eventually if they are not even going to have a planet to live on you know um, and a lot of them come from communities which are extremely vulnerable to uh, any environmental extreme environmental change extreme heat extreme monsoons anything like they are the first ones who will get hit so i think back in uh, the middle of my fellowship around 2015 is when i really started understanding that okay this is not this is not okay and i think my role as a teacher is more than just to teach them subjects and make sure they pass the exams so uh, i think it was in 2015 that cop 23 was happening or was it cop 21 i'm not sure but it was one of these uh, conferences where all these world leaders were getting together and talking about what are the kind of changes we need to make promises and you know like targets so as a class we started tracking that very closely we would have one class per day dedicated to understanding what happened in the conference the day before and, and this is to the third standard kids right yeah so i in my class i had kids ranging from 8 years to 14 years all in one class in class 3 i'm i'm really glad i started that with my students and then over time we had started doing things like newspaper reading so then the kind of articles that i would get my students every day were somehow all environmental articles about you know the migratory birds and the impact of climate change on migratory birds or like our waste crisis and that that's when i also started really focusing on waste because every time i did community visits i used to go to their houses the houses always were in the middle of the, or right next to like such big waste dumps you know like all the waste was they were they were literally surrounded by it on all four sides and it just for some reason it was a way of life for them i don't even think they questioned it so then we started doing things like you know best of waste projects and understanding that waste is something mm, what is waste something that you don't need anymore right but it someone else may still be able to use it or you can use it for something else it may not be the original purpose so that's when i really started thinking about all these things it was because of them and the kind of future that i was envisioning for them uh, was it this time that you started living you thought that i should do something a little more zero waste lifestyle Yeah so right after the fellowship actually I was quite burnt out I two years were hectic uh I would 100% recommend the fellowship to anyone but it's it definitely takes a lot of courage determination 
to stick it out for those two years and make sure that you give it a hundred and ten percent of what you can give you know uh, so right after the fellowship I decided to actually take a gap year to travel um, and I didn't want to just travel like that you know like I wanted a purpose I wanted something to um, I wanted my travels to have an impact somewhere so I decided to travel with the aim of being a zero waste traveler so creating as little to almost no landfill waste as possible so for and I thought I was done with schools and classrooms and education but I actually over my one year of travels I actually ended up spending time and speaking to about almost 30 classrooms 30 35 classrooms and I was talking to students about you know individual impact and individual actions and to basically not feel like you don't have power because you do have power it doesn't matter how old you are how young you are and I wanted students to know that from a very young age so again I was lucky I had access to a lot of TFI classrooms I just had to send out a message and say that okay I want to talk to your kids about this and the good thing about TFI is fellows are always looking out for uh, opportunities for their students to engage uh, with other people yeah. so uh, I ended up traveling quite a bit I was in South India for about five six five months I was in the north uh, in um, in a tiny village a little called Jagat so uh, a little above Manali about seven eight kilometers above Manali I actually taught there for five weeks in a government primary school which had six students and I had to trek up a hill for 45 minutes every day to reach that school. So what were the changes in the lifestyle you have adapted by that like in terms of becoming a zero-waste traveler that's supposed to be like in, in, if anybody who does not understand zero-waste lifestyle zero sure. becoming a zero-waste traveler is the hardest part of adapting to a zero-waste lifestyle like what were the changes you had to uh, I think I think for anyone who wants to understand what is a zero waste lifestyle, I'd go back a step and say what is waste and to understand the kind of waste you produce, my favorite activity is looking inside a dustbin. You will always <laughs> find me looking inside dustbins wherever I go, whether I'm at a restaurant and I see a dustbin, whether it's a friend's house, whether it's a school that I'm visiting, I always love looking inside dustbins. I think people think it's really weird, but I love it. Because like my mind immediately jumps to like a thousand things where I start thinking, okay, like this is in a dustbin. Why is it there? Like, can it be reduced? Can it be avoided? So I think the few, I started with very simple steps. I mean, like if I say this simple, it's because people have been repeating these for like a hundred years now. Like things like completely avoid uh, plastic bottles. Like that's so simple. But then at the same time, you know, like, I would like to say that we are lucky that we have to where most of the places we go, we have access to safe drinking water. Now think about like places that have been hit by natural disasters or whatever the reason may be, they don't have access to safe drinking water. You can't make them feel bad about buying drinking water. Yes. You know, like they don't have an option. But what I always say is if you have an option, if you are privileged enough to choose, then choose something that will possibly help lessen your impact on the physical environment around you. So uh, stop by, obviously stop buying uh, uh, packaged food. So when I was traveling, 
I started this, I picked up this habit quite early on where I would always have one or two empty tiffins, my cutlery set, like, you know, a straw in case I needed to drink something like coconut water. I always had a glass with me. So I think the thing about becoming or trying to lead a zero waste lifestyle is to always be prepared. And over the years, something that I've learned is in the kind of societies and in the world we live in today, zero waste is not possible. Like you must have seen all these pictures of all these, you know, influencers, zero waste influencers who always had this, had this jar of like waste. You know, like that's not always possible. And in fact, sometimes it puts too much pressure on people. They should start where it's possible for them. Even if that means reducing like little bit at a time. Uh, so I did, I did try like accumulating all my trash for like five weeks in a tiny box when I was in South India. Where were you like reading up how to adapt? Were you researching it by some place or did you just thought these are the things research I should be doing? Thought, I think, I think just, I wasn't researching it. Yes, there were a couple of like influencers, these typical ones that I was following on Instagram, reading up a little bit. But I think it also comes as a, like I said, I was always very intrigued by what we throw. So you so were already intrigued. Alternatives for that. Nice. So yes. yeah, I mean, it, and then you know, thinking about different aspects of life. So as women, we have to think about like menstrual products. Uh, and then when I was in Oroville, I came across this uh, organization run by women called Ecofem. They basically mm-hmm. make um, uh, washable pads and they sell um, me- menstrual cups. But I think, again, the thing I, I have invested in those, I do use those. I use like washable uh, menstrual products. But, the, but again, I think we have to remind ourselves that before going and telling the world that this is what you should use, I have access to running water. I have clean water to wash my products. I have space. I have privacy. You know, like now imagine a woman who lives in a one-bedroom tiny apartment with her husband and three kids. Where is she supposed to wash her things and hang them out? You know, she goes, there is a public toilet, which like a hundred people in that building use. You so an option like that may not always work for her. So, so is like what from what you're saying is like environmental change going to be like begin from the privileged first and then go down slowly, like to the ones who do not have those privileges at the moment, or is it something that like every part of the strata can do a little bit from there? I think that it's definitely not an equal playing field. That I'll say. It's not an equal playing field. But at the same time, there are always things that people can incorporate in their daily lives. For example, now if I talk about, uh, you know, the cleaner who comes to my house, the didi who comes to my house, what can she do? She Every time, she, every evening when she goes back to her house, she will stop at the vegetable shop, buy vegetables for her family and walk home. She doesn't, till now, till now I've never seen her like carrying her own bag. She'll always take a plastic bag from that man, from the vegetable guy. So that's something small, that's a small change that she can afford to bring about. Now, whether that's like stitching up her own cloth bag or me as, you know, as someone, um, 
who interacts with on a daily basis, giving her an extra cloth bag. We all have so many bags at home, giving her one and saying, use this. But to straight away tell her to jump and say, you use menstrual, uh, you use washable menstrual products. You know, that's where you have to start. That's not fair. And I think that's the learning curve that I have seen for myself ever, over the last five years since I've started like really engaging in this lifestyle. That you have to be really conscious and aware of what people are capable of. Right. And what is fair like for them to, where can they begin? Not everyone so there should can begin. Be empathy. Like what you, I'll try to rephrase it into something. That there should be empathy first and then yeah. you can expect something. Definitely, there has to be empathy. It's not an equal playing field. Uh, like, as we were saying that, in the, uh, you were adapting to the zero-based lifestyle. So, what were, like, were you able to find any brands or something that where you can buy your products from? Because everything that we normally buy is packaged. So, you were trying to avoid package or were you finding solutions to somehow recycle the package or reduce the packaging? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point because again, over the last five years, something that I've noticed is as this whole like shift to a more sustainable, and I think the whole definition of sustainable only no one knows. Uh, when we when we're shifting to a zero waste or sustainable lifestyle, this this whole concept of buying new products comes into place. Why we all why not use things that we already have? Like why do we have to buy like? I won't lie, even I got like quite swayed into it. I wanted to buy like a nice coffee cup that I could always carry with me. I, I always wanted to like have, you know, like a nice small cutlery set that I could always carry with me. But why? Why can't I just take a spoon from my kitchen and make sure that's in my bag when I go out? You know, so there is this, at least like having seen it in Australia firsthand, there is this, um, I, I don't know if I'd say but kind of like a hype around zero waste lifestyles where they're trying to make you buy more products like a new tote bag a new like cutlery set new coffee mug new tiffin like all these new new things that you have to keep buying when you can already use what you have i think so today if you ask me do i lead a zero waste lifestyle definitely not there is waste that i produce i just lead a more conscious lifestyle i think that's how i would like to frame it I think, I think that is the only way to frame it right now because, of course, whatever we are buying, we don't know how it is manufactured because sustainability, as you, you know, like it has a very broad definition. Exactly. It's not just about the, the it's waste. It's not just about the product that comes into your hand. It's about the before and after as well. Um, and I think one thing that I would like to highlight here is that sustainability is not just about the environment. It's about people as well. Like, what are the conditions of the people who made your products? What are their right. lifestyles? Like, how, how are their lives affected as well? That's sustainability as well. I think you have developed certain skill sets working. And you have also gone forth and uh, started living a lifestyle, which is slowly reaching towards zero lifestyle. And now... How did you use your skill set to reach out to the masses so that you can not just cause individual change, but help the society in understanding or maybe taking action? So what was the first time that happened for you? Um, so uh, like you mentioned earlier, I started a campaign with two of my friends called No Straws Attached. And that campaign was really about 
taking this whole idea about uh, waste and reducing waste to the public like till then i had been doing it at a personal level i was blogging a little bit about it writing a little bit about it but no straws attached is really about a letting consumers know that they have the power to choose or to say no and b telling businesses that hey like you have a responsibility as well so it's really a two pronged approach here so we started approaching businesses like bars restaurants cafes and telling them that hey join up join this campaign all you have to do is put up this poster and refuse plastic straws to anyone who asks and the other one was to tell uh, consumers that okay you have the power and we did that through videos posts getting people on board but one of the biggest flaws we realized in our campaign and we realized much later was yeah. we were it was not an inclusive campaign none of these mm. campaigns are inclusive and i'll tell you why it's because we completely didn't think about people who need single use plastic straws to live like there are people who have difficulties um ingesting food or swallowing or whatever the difficulty may be they need a plastic straw to sip even water and metal straws bamboo straws silicon straws they just don't work for them for a, a number of reasons so it wasn't until much later it was i would say at least a year year and a half into the campaign that we realized that like we made a really big mistake and you know like we the one thing about uh at least like environmental campaigns is that i think they should be inclusive you can't leave people out entirely you're being a little too harsh on yourself here because nothing can be actually truly inclusive whenever you're doing a campaign who is the target audience you're going for the masses but you're not going for 100% of the population right i know but at least for me like if 500 people come into a cafe and they don't take a straw and you know they're all happy about it but even if five people come in and they can't drink a drink because the cafe has proudly announced that they are part of a campaign i think it's not fair it's really not fair so to make it more inclusive you can say something like you know we are uh, we understand that there are some people who may require straws and while we work on alternatives that best work for you we will be using our surplus or the supply that we had from before to assist you so i think oh. it's not about being harsh on myself but it's about an understanding and realizing that you can always jump to these conclusions and get really excited about a topic without analyzing it properly so definitely that is one of the biggest learnings that at least i had while and this campaign this was one of the first campaigns that you ran and i think in this uh, the, the way you're saying it right now i feel that just a minor tweak in the language and the whole thing just becomes much much more inclusive as you said yeah i think the the role that campaigns may language plays if you could just elaborate a little more on that yeah um when i uh, so i think the one thing about any behavior change campaign is you're not the idea shouldn't be to force that person to change the behavior the idea should be to make it easier for them to choose the right behavior 
that's the difference so any any campaign that uses language that is forceful negative um obviously abusive language never works but uh you know picking someone out and using them as an as an example and saying oh don't ever be like them they are bad that doesn't work i think always making it more positive so for example i'll give you an example from a campaign that i know have a couple of campaigns that have taken place across the world but this, i think this one is from somewhere in australia where they were trying to get people to lower their energy consumption so instead of telling people that okay like deepak you used too much energy last year uh, in the last quarter we need to reduce your energy how they presented it was deepak this is your energy consumption and you consumed uh 20% more than the average in your community so that gets you to start thinking about the context then another one that i can tell you is uh you must have seen like cigarette butts you know like the end of a cigarette yes at least in australia i saw they are littered everywhere like they are everywhere so i was we, we a couple of friends and i we tried to get the university to identify this as a problem and to like create a solution for it and in that process i found this campaign that had actually um what they had done was uh to get people to start using the bins they had made one big dustbin and they divided that dustbin into half and they had written who do you support arsenal or manchester united so obviously like it was it became a fun game where people mm-hmm. actually which other team they supported they started putting more cigarette butts in that like people actually started cleaning up the space around it to make sure their team gets more more cigarette butts wow. and it looked and you could see which box had more cigarette butts so i think it's things like that like it's understanding it's understanding your audience as well it's not just telling it's not telling people what's right and wrong and i think that was again my a big learning for me because when i began in this space like when i began working in the environmental space when i began advocating for more conscious lifestyles i used to always tell people i used to always think that telling people what is right and what is wrong will work that people don't know so i am telling them but that's not true like people know and they still don't choose the right behavior that means you have to change your approach right what is the right approach like in terms of the emotions that you evoke in your consumer like what is the emotion you want is it that's fear anxiety because that is standard word no it's fear and fear anxiety anger never work negative emotions do not work and i like strongly recommend that we don't use them um the interesting thing is that this would be different for each campaign because for each campaign your target audience is different and if the target audience is different then you have to understand what is their relationship with the cause so we recently um uh there was this announcement by fifa i'm not sure if you heard but in feb or january or february fifa announced that they would not be using delhi as a venue for the under 17 world cup women's world cup because of the pollution in october november it's supposed to be this year but now because of covid it's cancelled so i wanted to run a quick campaign around that and i did it was called red card for delhi and my target audience was for that female football players 
So I tried to understand how are they feeling. Like what? Like female football players are so. And I, I'm not sure if I told you, but I play football as well myself. Yeah. So football players are female football players can be so passionate about football, right? Like any sport. Like sports people are always passionate about the sport they play. And how would they feel like when when they've been playing all their life and they and their own city can't host a World Cup because of pollution? Like that's sad, right? Like you have to. Also, understand their passion, their passion for the sport, and then mix it with their anger, their sadness. But don't make anger and sadness the front of your campaign. Show it as mm. the passion that the women have for the sport. Mm. So I think for each campaign, the emotion, the language, the narrative changes. But the one common thing is make sure it's not negative, like because that. Doesn't work. I really wanted to get back to that one thing. How did the whole Antarctica thing happen? Sure. So uh, I was actually traveling in uh, South India when I met um, another fellow who had done the Teach for India Fellowship. I met her in Chennai, and she told me about this uh, expedition. And I was really excited about it. I called my parents and I told them I definitely want to go, but it cost a lot of money. Like it was costing. a lot of money so and till then i had only heard of like two three people who had done this expedition so i said okay no worries uh, my parents said we definitely not paying for it it's a lot i said okay fine i'll find a way to pay for it myself so i actually decided to start crowd funding for it and within like a month month and a half i'd collected the money that i needed to go you say it like it's a very simple task and anyone can do it I don't know how. Yeah, I don't know how it happened. There were just so many people who came forward and like believed in the cause and believed that I. So what was the cause? So the expedition was a like um, a climate change expedition. So they bring all these like young leaders together and provide them with like knowledge and tools to go out and I guess save the world. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I think this is where that big dilemma comes in when I say I wish I hadn't gone. because while it changed my life i'll never forget the first moment i saw land i'll never forget the first iceberg i saw I'll never forget the first penguin i saw the whales that i saw but i think i just feel like antarctica should not become a place which is open to tourism right like yes in a way in a way it was it was tourism right like there are so many people who now want to go to antarctica because people like me have gone mm-hmm. so i feel bad that i've opened up this entire world to people telling them okay now it's okay to go there you know like oh. i thought i was going there with the purpose it definitely like helped me strengthen my you know belief that i want to work in the environmental space i want to make sure that our future generations have something to look forward to have like a planet worth living on but i think antarctica is just like really expanding in terms of like the number of people who go there every year or uh, people who want to go the number of ships that are going every year with people like it's just not fair so i sometimes feel like trips like ours and there were like almost 80 people on my expedition of course everyone posts pictures and then like 500 other people see your pictures and they say oh even i want to go then how do you stop yeah. people right like it's not fair you've been you can't tell other people not to go yes. so that's my only like that's the that's the one thing i do really feel bad about 
creating But, such a large climate uh, such a large carbon footprint myself to go to a place to study climate change uh, wow, like, i just felt like, i just felt like it was a bit hypocritical of me like i'm not going to talk about other people i'm just going to talk about myself and on my behalf that i just don't know i still i still battle with the idea of it being the right thing or the wrong thing you know but i do know that i will do everything that i can in my life to make sure that i make up for going now that i have gone how can i let people know what's happening there why did i go what is the antarctic antarctica uh, what is the antarctic treaty all about why do we need to save antarctica you know we live so far away from it but our lives are so connected to it that we don't even realize just because you've been there and i would love to see the place through your eyes now of course the way you are saying that it's better that we don't go there but i'd love to see it through your eyes and understand that what did you see like not many people have seen climate change with their own eyes not many people can actually go forth and see it you have you, can you just elaborate on that experience i think that's not true i think the fact that we all live in cities that are getting hotter dustier rains are reducing you know water tables are depleting that is all directly in front of us in terms of like what we are doing see, to the environment i am mean into say that we have normalized all of this in yeah. our eyes that we have really normalized all of this yeah. so but we still can like anyone who goes to the like antarctica or some other place like that still basically see it with their own eyes and there's only one explanation for whatever is happening over there because yahan pe bhi have enough excuses see this is something that this is the people who were also on the ship with us and they told us that okay like ice has like ice shelves have really depleted uh, and it's when and every year like if you look at all these satellite images and if you compare them every year like glaciers are retreating and that impacting uh, or like ice and snow there is reducing uh, and that directly impacts wildlife there as well so an example i'd like to give is what we saw this year i think it was 2019 2020 in the beginning when uh, so much ice and so much snow melted in antarctica that the land masses there became really muddy and that directly impacted the penguins who were living there and that is and that's like and just imagine how many penguins did not survive that winter because of what was happening so that is a direct example we didn't see that in front of eyes but i mean this is what we were told we were told that the ice is really retreated glaciers are melting ice shelves are like retreating um yeah and we didn't go all the way to the south pole we when we were only at the antarctic peninsula so the top tip of antarctica um and we were told that there have been a lot of changes but it's not something that i directly saw with my eyes you know like yeah you see ice ice everywhere you see snow everywhere but how can i know that there was more ice like you can't snow? see the patterns of the trends yeah, exactly so you, you all of this is just getting me a little uh, like upset about the whole thing uh, i i just want to like let's end at uh, some hopeful and a positive note and if you could just share where do you try like where do you see your hope 
and where do you try to motivate him to it's it's people waking up i'd say it's definitely like more and more people are realizing the danger that we put our planet in it's more people it's hope is seeing more people wanting to do something even if it's small like we always talk about change from the bottom up or the top down there are two types of change right. so don't ever underestimate like bottom up change se kuch nahi hoga their individual actions no like the planet is made up of 7 or 8 however many billion people we have now 7.5 billion people on our planet right they're individuals they also have power but of course we also need governments we need organizations to start understanding that it's not just about making promises and putting things down on paper anymore it's about actually following through uh and you know you see countries like new zealand like the prime minister of new zealand is so like she's done so much already while being in office in terms of the kind of policies the kind of laws you know like really like making sure that the climate agenda is right in front um so that gives me hope that really gives me hope like new new leaders coming up and saying that okay we're not going to take this anymore so yeah it's it's about seeing both both kinds of change i think we can end at this note and thank you so much for joining and this was beautiful i think i've learned so much and i have i'm just intrigued by the whole journey that you've had and i think within a couple of years we will meet again and we'll see being implemented by like just beginning there thank so, you and i think one, one, there is one yes. thing i would just like to point again point out again yes. i was thinking about hope and i can't believe i totally forgot this but there have been millions of people especially millions of children who yes. have really voiced their opinions in the last couple of years uh, mm. last two years specifically and that has given me immense hope like that's really i know that's like really bottom up change but that's really given me like a lot of hope a lot of like it's boosted me on days where i felt like doing nothing uh, so yeah it's that is definitely something that we should all support and look out for is young people um who voicing their opinions and wanting to create that change that's beautiful thank you so much for joining this was wonderful Thank you so much and good luck with your podcast.